social change doesn't happen overnight. This is Alex Ibbotson, and you are listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside with additional support from Interwest Insurance. This episode is also sponsored by 2B Outerwear. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, I hope everybody's doing well out there and staying safe if you're venturing into the backcountry. Boy, it's really been a pretty tough last couple weeks, at least in the United States here. Um, It's now February 9th. And since the 30th of January, unfortunately, we've had 16 avalanche-related fatalities in the United States. Um, It's really hard to watch happen, especially during a time of of the peak of the numbers of enrolled avalanche education courses. Um, We've got a ton of avalanche educational opportunities out there whether it's in person and in the field or online resources and the amount of outreach that every avalanche center is doing um, to try and help educate the recreating public. Um, So, you know, it's, 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 I think we all need to take a, a deep breath and a step back. And especially at this time with COVID, it's kind of the perfect storm. There's a ton of people in the backcountry scarcity is real people are looking for safe objectives to go ski and when those get tracked out i imagine the pressure is real to push into untracked terrain and given some of the snowpack conditions throughout the western united states it's not appropriate to do at this time so we just everybody needs to chill out wait a day wait two days wait three days Maybe not go recreate in the backcountry if you're not used to dealing with some of these trickier avalanche problem types, such as persistent slab or deep persistent slab problems. They're unpredictable. We haven't figured it all out yet, and we're not as good as we think we are. So let's slow it down. Let's use patience and understanding. Let's look out for one another in the backcountry. I know we can do better. Here we go. On today's episode, I'm really excited to share a great interview with Alex Ibbotson. You may have recently um, read an article in the Avalanche Review by Alex in the December issue called Adaptability in the Avalanche Industry, Integrating Diverse Cultures. And Alex shares some of her thoughts on Um, perhaps how we need to start changing the narrative around mechanized avalanche professionals out there and recreational mechanized users. Um, So we have a great conversation about 
integrating a couple different cultures and, and stop stopping to see our differences and starting to see more of our similarities uh, within the Avalanche community. We're going to get right into this interview with Alex, but first we're going to hear from somebody with a similar message. Um, John Miller is the founder of the Backcountry United Foundation um, that has a similar message to some of the things that we talk with Alex about. Essentially just making sure that we maintain access to all user groups in the backcountry and we you know, continue to look out for one another and uh, all continue to have fun in a safe fashion in the winter backcountry environment. So here's John. All right, John Miller of Backcountry United. Thanks for swinging by today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. So, John, tell us a little bit about what Backcountry United is. It's a passion project that came from decades of working in the motorized and human-powered outdoor industries. Really wanted to bring those two cultures together and push us into a sustainable future for the backcountry recreation that we all love. That sounds like a much needed thing these days. John, you're also a, a motorized air instructor. I've noticed that you really enjoy your 2B outerwear. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more, more about why you've been recreating and teaching in 2B outerwear for the last decade. Yeah, I just love this gear. Um, designed by Swedes, so, you know, it rains a lot where they come from and so naturally they had to figure out how to make this stuff really waterproof and um, they just crush it on that level uh, really durable gear but also um, loose and comfortable and and really serves me well for uh, snowboarding snowmobiling whether i'm in the backcountry or at the ski resort uh, the stuff really keeps me dry and warm and um and it's not the same old cookie cutter stuff that you see everywhere. So it's kind of got its own flair, good style, and I just feel good in it. Tell us a little bit about the Terminator helmet. Oh, man, it's the lightest helmet I've ever owned. I actually used to bring two helmets, uh, you know, a snowmobile helmet and a snowboard helmet when I was doing, like, dual sport days. And this Terminator helmet's just so light that I actually snowboard in it. It's almost like you don't even know that it's there wow that's incredible well john we're really hoping to get you on the show and and we're really excited to hear about your efforts with backcountry united and your efforts to spread the word of avalanche safety through education with airy um you know we were just talking earlier about how tough it's been to find some gear lately like a lot of places are sold out um but i just got word that 2B Outerwear has restocked. Yeah, you know, that's kind of a thing these days that everything's sold out. Like, I feel like anything boutique that you want in this industry is on back order or, you know, six to eight weeks out. And um, even for me, I, I needed some new gloves and boots. And um, I'm excited that they've got more gear in stock. And um, I think that it's a good opportunity for everybody to to jump on it while while it lasts yeah well it seems like some really great gear and we'd encourage everybody to head over to 2 that's t-o-b-e 
O-U-T-E-R-W-E-A-R.com to check out the latest offerings and restock from Tubi. Alex Ibbotson, welcome to the show. Great. Very happy to be here. Caleb, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, you bet. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, your background, maybe how you got into the realm of avalanche safety and backcountry guiding. It seems like you wear a lot of hats. So give us the rundown. Where'd you grow up and and what were some influences that got you to where you are today? Sure. Uh, I grew up in Invermere, BC, which is quite close to the Alberta border in the Purcell Mountains. Uh, I grew up a little snowboarder back in the day when there weren't too many snowboarders kicking around and definitely not too many female snowboarders. Uh, And then I sort of progressed into being a backcountry snowboarder, uh, big mountain snowboarder. And then eventually I got my first sled, which um, I did a little sled-based access with and then became predominantly a sledder um, about 15 years ago. So, so eventually you just started leaving the snowboard at home and, and um, riding sleds most of your time in the backcountry. You bet. Yeah. And then essentially when I started building my riding aptitude as a sledder, I started recognizing that I was taking myself into more complex terrain and not really having the skills to identify the hazard that was out there and um, being pretty attuned to risk and hazard uh, that was something that I didn't like so much so there was an initiative in I moved to Kimberly BC at a high school and um, there was an initiative for a couple locals who uh, passed away in avalanches and they were doing some uh, avalanche training courses so I was able to get my recreational level one And then that was just kind of uh, dipping my toes in sort of understanding the hazards that are out in the backcountry. And then when I took my operational level one with the Canadian Avalanche Association, that sort of made me a higher educated snowmobiler because we didn't really have a lot of avalanche education within our communities. So then that fast tracked me right into a leadership role with the Canadian Rangers in the armed forces. And suddenly I was uh, training troops um, combined with my snowmobile mountain riding skills, um, training abilities uh, that kept me employed for three winters there. (laughs) Yeah. And so that, that work with the armed forces or the Rangers um, that, that was along the same lines as an AST course, or was that more of a professional search and rescue, uh, geared course? Uh, what were you doing there? I was doing predominantly mountain riding skills. So, uh, technical riding instruction, actually in that instance, it was mostly Navy who were kind of dive dive unit that would have to ride snowmobiles out in uh, out on the ice and then hop in the ice and do their dive thing. <laughs> they, <clears throat> they didn't really need the avalanche training and they weren't ever going to be going into sort of avalanche terrain with hazards. So that was more 
me showing up as a subject matter expert to make sure we didn't get into trouble when we're out there doing our mountain riding skills instruction. Mm. And then talk a little bit more about your other roles with the Rangers. What, um, just from being down in the States, I'm a little bit unfamiliar with, with what the role of, of those Rangers are. And, and so talk a bit about that program and your, your other involvement with that. Yeah, you bet. The Canadian Rangers are a subcomponent of the primary reserve. Uh, so we're considered volunteer because we are not ever required to go on deployment uh, or operation. So we can choose if we, if we want to go work with Rangers or not. Um, and then obviously we have our civvy side roles as well, um, which is what most of us do for kind of primary employment. And so Rangers are um, backcountry and backcountry and survival sort of experts within the armed forces. We do a lot of training for regular forces and primary reserve units. Um, so enhanced survival skills. We train first aid, and then also uh, we're starting just last year, right before COVID nineteen, kind of cut our winter short. We did our first um, avalanche skills training course delivered by Rangers to Rangers. So from the C Canadian Armed Forces to the Canadian Armed Forces without an external contract. So that was pretty exciting. Uh, in that training course, we had 40 people on snowmobiles. We had a search and rescue unit, which basically went and practiced, uh, you know, mountain riding skills on snowmobiles. And then we had a avalanche skills training, which I was the section commander for. Um, and then there were a couple other rangers that came in and uh, joined the instruction team for that, who are also avalanche skills training instructors, uh, Avalanche Canada design content. And then we also had a another unit that did the Canadian Safety Council snowmobile operator course. So for people who hadn't had any snowmobile instruction yet that's sort of our first step so people understand the controls um, the mechanical functioning of the snowmobiles and then just kind of body movement and pretty basic around pylons and whatnot yeah and, and so you teach some of this stuff not only for the rangers but also um, you're a business owner you have your own own business tell us a little bit more about that yeah, you bet. With Canada Backcountry Services, um, I sort of started out doing women-specific technical riding skills and avalanche skills training. Um, I, most of my experience with the armed forces is predominantly male. So it was interesting kind of within the industry as a female instructor, people typically assume that you only instruct females. <laughs> But I mean, as a more petite rider with less weight and less leverage on a snowmobile, um, those technical nuances are really important for um, females. That's why often you see a lot of female instructors because we can't just get through it with muscle in it or the extra leverage. So, and then you apply that technique to, you know, a, a larger rider and it, it elevates the writing as well. So it, the whole gender division is unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Well, I think we're going to dive deeper into that throughout our conversation. So with, uh, with your business, you're, you're doing instruction and then um, also some guiding and then also some education, both in the private sector and then the armed forces sector. Regarding the guiding element up here in Canada, um, I'm still sort of working through the process of attaining my own tenure to be able to guide. So I don't actually essentially guide per se with Canada Backcountry Services just because of the um, permitting and whatnot required. However, guiding is a big, strong component of my skill set because I did that with the Rangers. We don't require the same um, tenure uh, elements with the armed forces when we go out on the land. And then also um, just as a recreational rider, that's something that I really like to do, get into the GIS and mapping and find a cool zone and, you know, get into the weather, find out where the snow is going to be best and no one else has been. That's, that's what turns my crank when I'm out there on my own time. <laughs> Alex, I was hoping you could talk a bit about your cultural heritage and maybe some of the connections that you have to snow machine use um, within within your culture. Sure. So I'm Canadian Métis, and what that is in Canada is um, someone who can link their lineage to the Red River, um, where a group of Métis people, um, sort of there's a rebellion, and the Canadian government wrongfully hanged our leader, Louis Riel, for treason. <clears throat> so it is actually kind of political to be Métis. <laughs> and Métis are one of three Canadian Indigenous people in Canada. And it is a little confusing as to what it means. Many Métis people don't even really understand what it means. Um, but in a nutshell, the, the fur trade, uh, what Canada was essentially developed on um, from east to west, is was on the shoulders of Métis people, Métis fur traders. And today in present Canada, we call them trappers. <laughs> and there's trap lines all over Canada. Um, and for a hundred years, it was against the law to be Métis. So there is a big sort of um, Canadian government um, threat towards Métis people. So they tried to abolish Métis culture and many people went into hiding. Many people um, actually fled to America. Our leader, Louis Riel, at one point did flee to America. So I keep meeting all these neat American people with my research and whatnot who love snowmobiling and I keep wondering if they're Métis and don't know. So for a hundred years, it was against the law to be Métis, so many people hid it and then just went on with their life and didn't um, speak about cultural elements. So in, the, in rural BC, where there's quite a bit of snowmobiling, where snowmobiling is quite strong as essential backcountry winter mobility, I speculate that many people are Métis and don't even know it. And there they are on the land living very traditional Meaty lives, um, but that intergenerational shame associated with identifying as Metis has kind of erased the connection. So when I go out into these um, communities and, and meet people living sort of out on the land in these rural areas, it, 
it's pretty neat the connections um, that I can make. And some people do know that they're Métis and aren't, you know, openly identifying. But um, when you get down to the core values and how connected we are to the land and how we all enjoy being in the mountains, um, that's when suddenly you can see how powerful it is to understand your heritage and connect with other people with the same heritage. And the, the persecution and some of the suppression of culture was, was prevalent until not too long ago, right? Like this was not very long ago um, that this was going on. Give us a bit of a timeline here. Yeah. The late 1800s, I believe, I'm not really good with my dates. I <laughs> <laughs> got my witness here. Um, so my ancestor was an Assiniboine guide who guided settlers across Canada. So it's actually kind of interesting and that links to all my tenure process that I'm trying to work on because there's a uh, kind of loophole that if you're exercising your section 35 rights as a Canadian indigenous person, you're allowed to operate on the land. And my ancestor actually was a Métis guide guiding across in parts of BC. So that is traditional Métis activities in my history, which is completely random. <laughs> like there's not very many people that would have that in their history. And there's not very many people who would be kind of doing the activities that I'm currently doing for a career. So very serendipitous how that's all kind of interconnected. Growing up, Alex, did you, were you aware of your Miti culture? Nope. Uh, I think when I was about 16, that's when my grandpa started uh, really, he was super interested in my great grandma. Um, she was female, she was native and she was born without a hand. So she was disabled. And uh, when she was born, she was almost even discarded by the doctor. And um, so she was always overcoming some, some discrimination for sure. So she basically just kind of was like, nope, we are not passing anything about being native along because it was so um, such a disadvantage uh, in Canada back then. So then my grandpa, uh, when he was, so I would have been 16, um, this would have been 20 years ago, he started exploring and actually traveled every summer, did vacations across Canada to find all of the graves and to find all the um, proof that we are Métis. So he, he did all the legwork for me. And then when I became um, 20, I, I got more interested in it and started understanding a little bit more about the heritage. And so that sort of gave me um, a head start on learning about it. And so now I'm sharing it with all my family members and it's pretty cool to, to go into a room, like to hang out with my family, um, being in the same room with people who share the same sort of core values and belief system like that is so powerful and inspirational. So whenever I visit my, my family, I always come out and just I'm so productive and firing on all cylinders afterwards. I get the same effect when I go to like a Métis uh, event, like with the Métis Nation of BC, the AGMs or any kind of like youth programming. I do some instruction for the Métis Nation uh, with like backcountry safety, values-based leadership and um, 
biogeoclimatic zones and invasive species training. So that's kind of what I've been doing right now with COVID sort of putting the other face-to-face things on hold. I've been diversifying my services so that I provide virtual programming and really finding a meaningful connecting with more Métis people. Well, it's pretty awesome how you're able to combine your cultural history and your passion for teaching in the snow. Um, and it's, it's pretty evident that, that those are quite interwoven into what you're doing today. So Alex, as a backcountry education provider, provider of some education to other backcountry users, what do you feel is needed from the industry to strengthen um, both professional snowmobile guiding and within um, some qualifications and certifications? And then also, uh, what are some barriers that you've had to overcome to enter into this realm? Yeah, for sure. Well, that's a great question and actually consumed a lot of my thoughts for <laughs> several years. And then interestingly enough, when I did my research uh, within the snowmobile-based practitioner realm in both Canada and America, um, one of the big things, one of the big missing pieces is mentorship. <clears throat> and that was expressed by everyone across the board and then, I mean, it makes makes sense that it's missing because almost all of our avalanche practitioners in Canada and America are ski-centric, ski-based, um, and they're totally two different cultures, right? And you have to have a very um, inclusive person to step outside their comfort zone and everything they know <clears throat> and agree with and welcome in an outsider. <laughs> and just by um, the nature of emergency type uh, environments like avalanche safety, those are those are clo- very uh, close cultures, very, um, what I mean, tight cultures. And what I mean by that is that uh, within a tight culture, there is less tolerance for people who do not adopt socially normalized behavior with the mainstream culture. <clears throat> so if you look at someone on a snowmobile, they're completely on the other side of the spectrum as far as how they use the land, um, what their purpose is, you know, like I, I think you can understand where I'm going here. And in, in a community that sees imminent risk or imminent threat which we do in the backcountry those avalanches are sitting up there right if you're going in terrain 30 degrees or more there's there's threat there's risk out there so that just fosters an environment where we do not welcome outsiders so apply that concept and that academic knowledge to the avalanche industry and you have a whole bunch of skiers coming up through the system that's been designed for skiers And there's not really a lot of room for snowmobilers there. And then you have a snowmobiler who made their way through the system, like myself and many of my colleagues. Uh, Recently, there's six of us who've been able to get into the level two professional training in the past eight years. Wow. Of snowmobile or of avalanche practitioners in Canada, snowmobile based practitioners who took their training on snowmobiles make up 3%. So 
So we're a very small minority within the industry. So to go and find some leadership who's going to mentor you in a meaningful way that's relevant to your chosen mode of transportation is very difficult. (laughs) And they're there. And I've been very fortunate and privileged to have mentorship in in a non-official way. But I mean, then I'm still going and asking people to dedicate their days on snow to teaching me when they have other priorities as well, right? But just recently, uh, I was selected for a mentorship with Avalanche Canada. So some of the data that came out of my research, um, and actually the the gal who's mentoring me, Jennifer Coulter out of Fernie, BC, she's um, the lead of the Fernie uh, field team, forecasting field team. And, sorry, uh, um, data collection field team. And she, she's been working on this mentorship program. And it I think it was just really nice for the data coming out of the research to just affirm that that's what's needed. And then just to hear all the participants kind of say the same thing over and over. And the same thing that's been rattling around in my mind for the last few years. Um, so now I just have to get it on paper and write my thesis. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, Alex, tell us a little bit more about this research. You, you've referenced it a couple times, and so talk a little bit about that that other hat that you wear as a sure. as a researcher. Yeah, you bet. So right when I was applying for the industry training program level two, um, and didn't quite fit the requirements because I didn't come up as a skier that kind of fit into the system. Uh, my application was rejected. So then I was like, well, I better just go apply for a master of arts and leadership because I want to do some training somewhere. And if I can't do it here. (laughs) So then um, I got accepted for that uh, program at Rural Roads University out of Victoria, BC. And then a couple of weeks after I got accepted, the CAA reconsidered my application and I got accepted into the level two program as well. (laughs) So I was there were some bottlenecks going on over those winters. I had a lot on the go. Um, but then it just made sense to kind of blend the two together. Um, so my research is around uh, inclusion and diversity in the avalanche industry with the emergence of snowmobile-based practitioners. So we're looking at the problem of low enrollment for snowmobile-based practitioners in professional level training. And just some, how does that, how, how does our low enrollment of professional snowmobilers in avalanche training, how does that affect our recreational users? Um, and just from a leadership perspective in general, And what we're seeing with the lack of mentorship, we don't have that upper level leadership. We do, there's a handful, but when you start looking at the numbers of people in the backcountry and the numbers of people um, in the avalanche industry in general, we make up, like I said, 3%, so such a small percentage. How do we change that? Is it the system that needs to be changed? Is it, um, so many of those questions were asked to, I did narrative interviews with some really predominant people, snowmobile-based practitioners in the avalanche industry um, with a dialogical process where we appreciated what is is working and happening. Um, And then with that data rolled into a large group dialogue 
um, on the Zoom platform where we all met in our virtual meeting spaces and shared some dialogue around how to um, support snowmobile practitioners who want a professional level of training. So again, back to the abundance mentality, you know, how are we going to shift the culture where the expectation is a higher level of avalanche knowledge and training? And I'm seeing it, you know, within the Rangers, it's shifting now that we're starting to deliver AST programming, avalanche skills, recreational level one to our Rangers. And that's now starting to be the expectation. You don't go into avalanche terrain without this per se learner's driver's license to actually be able to identify if you're in avalanche train in the first place you know that's kind of the first step and then with more people kind of getting that base level knowledge you'll have your rising stars going up and getting the professional level as well and then we start seeing leadership and over the last four years with the rangers now uh, I'm starting to see some of my riding buddies who would just throw caution to the wind before and just go willy-nilly out into the <laughs> out into the wilderness. <laughs> now they're starting to notice where the hazards are, how they can make informed decisions, and then leading their recreational groups on how to make informed decisions as well. Well, it seems like uh, from your research, are, are you finding that that there is a cultural shift that's happening and, and more of a focus being put on the the, the motorized professional? Um, is it working? Oh, yeah. Like we're, we're already seeing the shift. And, you know, it, it's kind of like, was it already happening before I did the research? <laughs> you know, you kind of wonder. But it all, all these elements kind of moving together um, cr create that, that culture shift we're looking for, right? Because transformational social change doesn't happen overnight. But if you have a small group of dedicated individuals working together as a team, then suddenly you see great things. For instance, the virtual snow science workshop, which was hosted by the uh, Fernie crew, um, it went virtual because of the COVID-19 complications. And um, they had a panel of all snowmobile-based practitioners. Like, that's huge. We hadn't seen things like that before happening in the avalanche world. And then in addition to that, we have this Avalanche Canada mentorship program happening. And then the participants within the research, we're all very excited about this. When you start seeing a group of people all thinking the same way, then suddenly you don't feel like you're alone on a crusade. <laughs> you, you feel like you're a part of a bigger community and there's a belonging and you all have a shared vision. What it, what's part of your shared vision with that with that group or subsect within the industry and and what would you hope to see it look like in you know three to five years? Yeah, well, I mean, we're sort of and this came up in the data from most of the participants where snowmobilers are kind of looked at as you know <laughs> a little less professional. Um, many people mentioned they feel disrespected by avalanche practitioners and leadership in that realm. Um, there's just kind of a, a lack of acknowledgement of the wisdom and the experience and the expertise that many of us do have. You know, you have 50-year-old sledders who've been managing that avalanche problem for 35 years, 
and they're still here today. So obviously they have some knowledge to bring and not only um, that, but they're traveling at a rapid rate through the hazard, through the back country. So the amount of hazards we're exposing ourselves to is exponential. Um, and then you have your further out, your mechanical issues and everything. So that in its own, I mean, I got a snowmobile sitting in the mountains behind me right now. We have to go pull out tomorrow. So there's, you know, there's a lot, a lot of extra kind of safety elements and whatnot. The snowmobilers are already just naturally managing. Um, so how do we take that sort of experiential knowledge and wisdom and use it as kind of a tool to show that, yeah, snowmobilers are professional. We have something to bring to the table. We we're doing some pretty cool things out in the backcountry, and then layer that with our formal avalanche training, which is accepted by the industry, <clears throat> but with the two different cultures to kind of integrate the two is um, tricky, mm. <laughs> but you get the right people like Jen Coulter, um, there's, there's many other people like Ian Stewart Patterson. Uh, he's, he's a wealth of knowledge in the avalanche industry up here in Canada. And then you have your airy folks, Sean and Liz and, and Margaret, you mentioned like people who we, we want to learn from others who are different than us, you know? So I'm always bringing people that think completely differently than me to have conversations with because it's going to expand my own perspective and make me a more diverse thinker and decision maker right instead of asking them just to go think that way somewhere else because that's not how I think right so just kind of the the integration um is huge and it's going to enrich the avalanche industry in general and we're seeing so many skiers now using snowmobiles to access the backcountry and then because they have this high level of expertise in their skier world, thinking that they're good to go, and then suddenly they blow an A-arm and don't know what to do 30 kilometers out in the backcountry and there's a storm coming in, it's four o'clock, you know? It's like, mm, you got yourself in a bad situation that <laughs> you don't know how to get out of. Bet you wish your snowmobile buddy was there to help you, <laughs> you know? So we can learn from each other and help each other and that inclusive diverse environment is the way we're going to be able to do that right yeah but uh just a side note i think you just described me <laughs> i am that demographic this season and and i'm going about my my foray into motorized winter use with a, a strong amount of humbleness <laughs> and I've, I've got a lot to learn from anybody that knows how to ride a sled and 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 um it's it's an exciting venture to blend, you know, uh, a, a new exciting skill and something that I've been doing for a while, um, but trying to see both sides for sure. Yeah, I just had, there's a ton of extra people going in the backcountry, you know, people suddenly having the uh, extra cash moles to buy a snowmobile and I mean, this season alone already, we're, we're just, just getting into January here. And I know several people who put their trucks in the ditch. I know several people who've launched their snowmobile under their back window. Like it is not straightforward. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's extra things to think about and be careful about. And I'm, 
continually coined safety Alex. Oh, watch out for that. Watch out for that. But it's true, you know? Right. So Alex, you said then the last eight years, only 3% of individuals taking the Canadian operations level two were snow machiners. Um, if we were to break that down into gender roles, how many of those were, were females? Yeah. So of the people in Canada um, who have taken an industry training program tier two, so professional level two, so transfer that to America, that would be the pro two. On snowmobiles, so the Canadian Avalanche Association delivers it on snowmobiles, much like in America, it can be delivered uh, motorized. Mm -hmm. So those people who have got their level two on snowmobiles, we make up 3% of the, the people, 3% or less. Um, this I haven't really been provided the full statistics, but that's just what I've been able to extrapolate from my colleagues who've taken the training. Uh, and within that, ever, anyone who has done it on snowmobiles, one third are females. So up in Canada, um, for people who have taken the level two pro program, one third are females. So that's a pretty, pretty great uh, gender diverse statistic especially when you start thinking about snowmobiling, right? Like, cause everyone always thinks that's a male thing to do. Um, and then in the last eight years, so um, since 2012, females make up 50% of the people who have taken the Canadian Avalanche Association industry training program level two. So we are showing up pretty, um, pretty substantially in Canada on snowmobiles. And interestingly enough, there's been a shift within, within the data that came out in my research. Um, so what happened is snowmobiling traditionally was very family oriented. Um, kids were doing it. Like if you talk to many of these pros who did it growing up, they said they did it with their mom and dad. Everyone had their little kids snowmobile. It was very fun family-oriented sport and then enter the new technology changes and then the popular narrative that snowmobiling is so intense and extreme and we have 800 cc's and now we're doing this and turbos and what and then all the marketing is people like wheeling up the side of a mountain over an avalanche and stuff right and then uh, the families were like whoa i'm not taking my kids out there this is like that that whole social popular narrative that was constructed to essentially sell snowmobiles and I mean it's pretty it's pretty cool sport I'm not gonna lie I like I like the <laughs> I think it's pretty badass I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that on here <laughs> but then that sort of um restricted and 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 stopped the females the families the kids and without youth coming up into the industry, our sport will die. You know, that's just a, that's just a progression thing when you look at who's doing it. If it's only a bunch of 50-year-old people and there's no youth in there, that sport isn't going to last too much longer. Um, so recently, there's been a phenomena of female riding clinics, female-specific avalanche training. Uh, so we're getting 
our ladies back out more predominantly. And then with that comes the family, right? With that comes the kids. And it isn't just mom staying at home with the kids and dad going out and having fun in the mountains. Now it's everyone going together. Maybe they're riding a little bit different terrain, but with that family oriented um, perspective, we also bring a safety factor because when mom and kids are there, you know, dad's not crushing beers and (laughs) wheeling up a mountain. He's being a respectful dad and showing little Johnny how to do things properly. Right. So we are seeing another shift back to how, what I call traditional snowmobile culture. What has your experience been like being a woman in this male dominated industry? Well, I've always kind of been in male dominant industries, so I'm comfortable. Um, definitely grew up a tomboy, grew up communicating with, males and whatnot so i definitely can can fit in um it's interesting also with snowmobiling because it is such a physical and powerful sport that when fellas see a female with a high level of riding aptitude there's almost like an immediate respect so that's worked for me for sure um the industry in general, like a, because I'm not really an insider of the mainstream avalanche culture, which would be ski centric, I don't see as much of the gender discrimination that's happening. Like in, in Canada, there was a academic research uh, paper done around gender inequality and how that's affecting the mental health of guiding uh, and the avalanche industry. And it, it was pretty clear that there there's some gender inequalities personally I haven't really seen that but also I mean I own my own company um, a lot of the systems I'm in like with the armed forces you know if you show up and you ride and you're helping all the other people out that suddenly the you're a female and can't be here narrative just disappears right um and like I said, we we make up in my industry training program in level two, there was 50% female sledders. So it, I wasn't a minority in that respect. Um, but us as sledders, the six of us in a room of 24 other practitioners that were skiers suddenly were the minority, right? So it, it was... It, almost all of my research and my academia and stuff is about um, bringing the minority voice to the table and whether I'm doing that in the Métis arena as the minority indigenous people in Canada, (laughs) we're definitely, um, you know, minorities compared to first nations. um, If you're, if you're talking about indigenous rights in Canada and then in the avalanche arena, Snowmobilers are obviously a minority as 3% of professionally trained practitioners in the level two program. But the female element hasn't really been the driving inequality that I've noticed in this particular um, situation. So that's, that's a hard question, but I mean, in general, as a female, um, I just, I was, 
fortunate enough to be raised with parents who, who didn't um, imprint socially normalized gender roles on me. So I've always been um, able and expected to, to do all the jobs and not say I'm a, I'm a female, so I don't have to do this hard job, but <laughs> you know, after a day of sliding when I'm all tuckered out, sometimes my fella does all the hard jobs for me, but, <laughs> but we'll keep that between you and me. <laughs> like any good partnership, I'm sure. Well, it certainly seems like you're doing a great job of uh, setting the example for younger female snow machiners that are coming up in the industry, you and I'm sure some, some of your colleagues as well, um, to, you know, shake up this mold that might exist, right? And, and start to see things in a different way, um, start to question the status quo. So, um, you know, great job doing what you're doing and, and good luck continuing with that. Thanks, Caleb. And, you know, that's just it. As soon as, as soon as we let society tell us what we can and can't do, we're, we're at a disadvantage. Like there's no reason to limit ourselves or let someone else's blind spot or own baggage limit us as to what we can do. So just kind of removing all of that and, and seeing things with fresh eyes and, and the possibilities that is when suddenly we start seeing shifts. And in an environment that we're in right now with COVID-19, transformational social change has been normalized. That is the status quo. So we need to focus on being strategic with our new patterns. You know, once we start getting back into kind of autopilot, if you will, on a neurocognitive and then behavioral level as a society you want those patterns to be more meaningful like we've deconstructed so many detrimental patterns and and gender inequality is probably one of them that's just being kind of eroded as we go here so we're in kind of this special time (laughs) i know everyone's like oh covid sucks but if you look at it from a systems analysis perspective now Right now, there's huge opportunity for people to start being um, deliberate with our choices and then creating patterns that are going to serve us in the future. Right. A silver lining, perhaps. Yeah. Alex, care to share a, a story of a lesson delivered in the, in the winter backcountry environment that you've had in, within your career? Yeah, you bet. So one thing I think about, and especially on snowmobiles, is um, kind of leadership in the backcountry. You know, if we're going into a zone and it's deep, deep out into the mountains and no one knows where they're going except for the one person that's been there before, we sort of um, we give responsibilities and leadership to people without necessarily having the conversation about it, who should be the leader, knowing who's experienced, trained, or capable of holding those leadership skills um, and being responsible for the whole crew behind them, right? And um, one, one situation that 
comes to mind is when I did something like that. I had just finished my Canadian Avalanche Association level one and I was feeling pretty uh, educated <laughs> going into a zone I'd never been before uh, in bad viz. It was definitely, you can see anything. It was um, pretty fogged in on a glacier and there was a large group in a small riding area. Um, and I mean, it was just the beginning of the season. Everyone was all geared up to go out and there's people who are kind of riding on sleds to get some snowboard turns and whatnot. And so there we were sitting there ready to kind of blast up onto the, up the hill. I didn't even really realize where we're going, but you know, I was following the person who's been there before the local and uh, just kind of whatever my life's in their hands. <laughs> so in that bad viz, you have to be, going quite fast and following the person in front of you otherwise they disappear and you don't know where you're going so we're screeching up this hill going and I kind of see in the in the abyss oh someone turned out here to my right I can't go there now I'm probably on a 40 degree angle going straight up oh someone turned out left I can't go there where am I gonna go oh I see a track here okay I'm good I'll follow this track sure enough the track ends with a stuck snowmobile sticking straight up in the air so I can't go there anymore so I turn to my left and I'm like oh what's that coming in the dark in the abyss what's that oh it's a cornice lip okay my skis are right there on this cornice lip so I hit my brake just in time to not drive off a cornice off a cliff and look down to my left and there's a couple of my other friends there that I'm about to roll backwards with my snowmobile and for end over end on top of so I hit my kill switch, kind of fall on my side and stick my arm straight up. And luckily I'm able to stop my snowmobile from rolling backwards. The force of that was enough to bend my handlebar straight over. <laughs> so it was, I was lucky to be able to stop it. And then my, my tether, I ride skidoo. So if you don't have your, your tether on you, um, you can't start your snowmobile. So somehow, my tether got pinned and, and the little cord ripped and my key went flying out into the snow. So there I was, no key on the top of this hill in the fog, can't see anything. <laughs> so that in that situation, I use that actually as an example in my avalanche training, recreational avalanche training courses as a situation where you're giving someone else they don't, they're just out there riding, having a good time and being like, yeah, okay, I'll show you the place. And, you know, I don't know what their risk tolerance level is. And I'm following them out there into the mountains where there's cornices and cliffs to drive off and stuff and crevasses and glaciers and whatnot. So, you know, have that conversation earlier before you're sitting there with your helmet on and the snowmobiles are running and you're ready to rip into the mountains have that conversation do we know where we're going <laughs> and um i mean i definitely am out of my element on glaciers i'm i'm more of a tight tree kind of kootenai tree line kind of rider so i i was feeling like i needed someone else as the leader but i mean we don't really have a system to qualify people for those roles. Yeah. 
So, so in lieu of that, maybe just having honest conversations and taking a little bit more intention around planning out the day sounds like uh, perhaps that was a lesson learned there. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of one of the um, elements of snowmobiling. You know, you're on a trail for 20 kilometers, just, just almost as simple as driving in your pickup truck to the zone, right? You don't have that whatever three hours of skinning into a zone where you're having that dialogue and you're talking about what's ahead of you. So one of the big differences as a snowmobile practitioner is that you're in the gut of the mountains immediately. And suddenly you don't have that kind of incremental increase of risk hazard (laughs) or risk and hazard. So you're not continually letting your spidey senses climatize to the situation you brought yourself into you're just in it mm. immediately and suddenly making tough decisions and that could be the matter of life and death and now with covid-19 everyone's deciding that they're going to become backcountry adventurists <laughs> and with zero experience and you know we're seeing a lot of recreational avalanche training um increasing which is great great another thing that covid has been making happen interestingly enough in addition to avalanche training there's other elements that we need to start exercising so that we can be safe out there yeah it seems like one of those elements that keeps coming into my head is just patience right this is a it's a long process to be able to make good decisions in the mountains, especially in the avalanche arena and just taking a course or two and checking the boxes. Um, unfortunately that it's not enough. Right. And, and so years and years of experience and, um, you know, being out there with mentors and more experienced riders, whatever your form of travel is, Um, I just keep coming back to that and and the fact that we all need to be a little bit more patient. We're in such a immediate culture of, of, you know, ordering something online and it gets here tomorrow, right? We we're just like totally brainwashed to wanting things immediately and experience in the backcountry can't get it from Amazon prime, like no matter, no matter how hard you try. So uh, just slowing things down and, and surrounding yourself by, with good people that, that you can communicate well with that, that are able to make good plans, um, I think is fairly invaluable, but, but you can't just pick it up at the corner store. Yeah, totally. You hit the nail on the head. And that's, I think where the snowmobile culture and the ski culture can, can just that relationship between Skiers and snowmobilers can just enrich our backcountry recreationalists, our professional backcountry folks, because we have, you know, hundreds of years of avalanche science and very detailed observation skills and mentorship in our ski communities. And then we have that kind of like really rugged snowmobile, mechanical, make it work, MacGyver traditional snowmobile culture with our experienced snowmobilers. So together, um, you know, we can, we can just 
make everybody a lot more safe and educated and experienced and just those, those rich relationships between the two. And I know it is scary to invite someone who's different than us to the table <laughs> or for a beer or whatever. But once we let down that guard and that sort of um, fear of differences, um, fear of the unknown, then suddenly it's just, it's a bit freeing, huh? Totally. Yeah. And I just, I don't, there isn't much I can compare to just the enlightening when you discover something you've never considered before and your brain is just opened up to this whole new realm that you never thought because it's a total blind spot to you. And typically we need to bring somebody, um, into our world that is totally different than us, has a totally different backpack of experiences and expertise and knowledge and training that comes with it. And it often it can be counter to everything we know, but then that just stretches your, your imagination and your possibilities. And then it's just to infinity and beyond. <laughs> well, Alex, it's been great sitting down and chatting with you today and, and I think you're bringing a whole lot to the table here, um, you know, with with uh, enlightening myself about the Mati culture um, and your deep roots to snow machining in in the in the land where you come from, as well as just including um, some other voices at the table within the avalanche industry. So um, I appreciate all the work that you're doing to bring about some more awareness to this within our community. Um, thanks a lot. Awesome. Thanks, Caleb. Uh, I'm really grateful you invited me to come and chat with you today. And I'm just delighted to hear how inclusive you are and how open to um, bringing in Canada and having a, a bunch of new satellite interviewers up here in Canada and just kind of uh, expanding your reach, diversifying the types of topics you're talking about here. And, uh, you know, it's it's folks like you that are pushing the industry for a more inclusive environment. So uh, hopefully one day we can get together and I can show you a thing or two on a snowmobile once, once we get everything under control with our borders and our health, our global health situation. And yeah, I'd, lo I'd love to connect. Yeah, that'd be great. Where can people find a little bit more about Canada Backcountry Services? And, and do you have any industry sponsors you'd like to thank? Anything like that? Yeah, you bet. Uh, you can find me on canadabackcountry.ca. Uh, my website is under construction, but it, it's starting to look better and better every single day. <laughs> yeah, I've been incredibly pleased and grateful for my relationship with the American Institute for Avalanche Research and Education when I was sort of cruising around looking for people to be my partner organization for this research and talking about diversity and looking at inclusion and trying to be the minority voice for snowmobile-based practitioners in the industry. It wasn't really well received. Um, so I, I kept hitting roadblocks and then suddenly I was connected to Airy through a fellow up in Canada, Jeremy Hankey. He connected me with Travis Feist, and then Travis connected me with uh, Sean and Liz over at Airy. And man, we just started 
yammering about all the same stuff with <laughs> social dynamics, human behavior, and we we're just completely on the same page. And I mean, Liz connected me with you, Caleb. Liz connected me with John Farian, which I did an interview with a, a few months back there. And I, I guess maybe in America, just the population density in general, there's the, those groups, like I would consider you a very inclusive person within the avalanche industry and very abundance uh, mentality rather than scarcity mentality. So suddenly when I got linked into the American arena, there's a massive group of people who are like-minded like me and wanting to connect with uh, others that don't necessarily have the same background or experience. So a uh, huge, huge shout out and thank you to Sean and Liz at Airy um, for making my research possible because it wasn't looking like I would be able to find someone to work with before that. Yeah, I've been working with Forest Power Sports out of Prince George, BC. Norm Brown, the owner there, has been instrumental for my success. Obviously, the Canadian Rangers have been a huge support for me. They allow me to um, try on my instruction and have allowed me to create my own custom content. So that has been amazing. I just just partnered with Garmin. Uh, got some really cool navigation devices so in my exploration elements so I'm, I'm playing around with those and trying to get them dialed and share it with my networks. Um, I also ride Skidoo. They've, uh, that's been a great machine for me. Um, Highmark by Snowpulse. Uh, great avalanche products. Packs. Man, they, they set me up with five different packs to try out and share with all my friends so that everyone can use the equipment before they go drop in three grand on avalanche equipment sort of thing. So try before you buy because, um, you know, we're all different. We're all different shapes and stuff. So the uh, the Highmark by Snowpulse avalanche packs, I've really been enjoying those ones this year. Mammut safety products, the I sort of started in the industry on my Mammut's uh, Berryvox Pulse. Um, so I, I like that interface. So now the Berryvox S is just kind of like that next level. Well, thanks so much, Alex. I, I hope you continue to have a nice, safe winter up there, full of powder and hopefully stable snow. Yeah, you too, Caleb. Get some fresh yeah. All right, cheers, Alex. I'd like to just take a, a moment and give remembrance to a good friend and occasional ski partner, Brooke Galling. Brooke lost his life in an avalanche um, this last week on February 3rd in Etna Summit, um, which is in Northern California. I first met Brooke at, at Solitude Mountain Resort while I was ski patrolling there. Brooke was the night auditor or night manager at the Solitude Inn, which happened to be right next door to the Solitude Ski Patrol locker room. And so I would see Brooke going to work after skiing for the whole day. And just as the patrollers were coming off a sweep and heading to the locker room, crack a beer. And you know, you could always tell the, the real diehard skiers because they always looked for jobs like that where they could ski all day 
and then work at night, maybe catch a few hours of rest, and then just do it all over again. And, and Brooke was definitely one of them. Um, you know, he cut his teeth in his hometown of Ashland, Oregon, at Mount Ashland. Um, no doubtly influenced by notable skiers such as Pep, who were also from that community. Um, and Brooke was an amazing skier. He, he skied lines off of Fantasy Ridge, unlike anybody I've ever seen ski lines uh, in that terrain. Um, and, and he made that his playground. And, and oftentimes I would see him just get off the lift. I would be hanging out at the, the summit shack there and he would shoulder his skis, cruise up the, the exposure of Fantasy Ridge and just amazingly pick his way through very technical terrain with speed and ease and just amazing, an amazing amount of flow. Uh, Brooke was super humble about his abilities and never was touting, you know, the lines that he skied off of the ridge. It was just, he would just leave his mark and, and smile and ski on down through the canyon and, and you'd see him right back up there in about 45 minutes doing it again. Um, Brooke then, then spent some time down in Central America where he was learning best practices of sustainable agriculture. And it's there where he met the love of his life and, um, and wife, Yelska. And after a couple years down in Central America, they moved back to Brooke's hometown of Ashland, Oregon. Around that same time, my wife and I moved to the Rogue Valley, just up the up I-5 from Ashland. And it was really nice having a familiar face in the community. Um, you know, we went skiing a, a few times. I, I started working elsewhere for the winters, and so I wasn't around a ton for, for the winters. But every time that I got out with Brooke, whether it was skiing or mountain biking, it was always a good day. Um, mostly due to his just positive energy, positive outlook on life, um, and calm, calm demeanor. Um, so it's with great sadness that that I remember Brooke, um, and 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 share what happened to him on Wednesday. I had I I, I was home for four days between you know month long stints of ski guiding and forecasting. And I hit it just right. We had good snow in Southern Oregon and Northern California. And my wife and I were getting out for a ski tour in the, in the closed ski area of Mount Ashland because they're closed on several days of the week. And it, we just lined it up just right. And it was gonna be a great day. I texted Brooke, see if maybe I'd see him up there that day. And he said he was heading to Etna Summit. I've always wanted to check out Etna Summit. It's a uh, it's just a little known zone between Ashland and Mount Shasta and steep technical terrain. I've only been through there in the summer, um, but, but looked at the terrain as, as what looked like really good ski terrain. Um, Brooke got back to me, said he was going to go check out Edna Summit with a partner that day. And I said, enjoy. It wasn't until the next day, Steph and I were out ski touring again that I got a phone call from a uh, good friend, Nick Myers, the forecaster at the Mount Shasta Avalanche Center. Um, and he gave me uh, the unfortunate news that, that Brooke had, 
had died in an avalanche the, the afternoon before. Um, and I, I pretty much just, I lost it. I broke down in the skin track and, um, it was, it was pretty hard to, to come to terms with, but Brooke and his partner, Ben, were transitioning near a ridgeline when a wind slab broke out above them. Um, it was about two feet deep and 60 feet wide, and it carried them both down slope, um, pinning Brooke into a grouping of trees about 20 feet from the, from the crown, and it washed Ben a bit further down slope. Ben was partially buried and was able to dig himself out and started to perform a beacon search, but was having searchability issues with his, with his beacon due to what was later revealed as some corrosion in the battery compartment. And so his beacon wasn't performing correctly and he was able to locate the likely area where, where Brooke was and begin to, to he, he found some equipment and he was able to dig him out without the use of a beacon in about half an hour um, and, and, and tried some life-saving measures on Brooke and, and um, unfortunately it was too late. And so it's with a super heavy heart that I remember the light and positivity of Brooke and I send my positive vibes and prayers to Brooke's family and his community and the same thoughts and prayers go out to all of the communities and partners and families of those who have recently lost their lives in the mountains. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everybody. Um, if you're enjoying the show, please tell a friend, tell that friend to tell a friend. If you want to take it a step further and really help us out, you can go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review us there. Give us a follow on the social. We're reluctantly on Instagram and Facebook, and we are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. You can keep up to date on the latest episode releases and make sure that you don't miss a show. Of course, our artwork was created by Mike T. You demand T. For any of your illustration needs, check out Mike T at www.miketea.com. Our theme music was written and performed by Chris Kaplinski. Thanks, Chris, for your contribution to the podcast. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Let's look out for one another. Cheers. Cheers.